Go ahead and have a seat if you haven't already. And take your Bible with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is, uh, oh, Larry's got a handful. He can bring one to you. Just put your hand in the air and he'd be happy to, to put one in front of you. It's important to have the words of, of our Lord in front of us as we, as we look at them this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to take this whole chapter, and it's 40 verses. I'm not sure that we've ever done this before. We're going to take all 40 verses. It's a big chunk of text, and at first glance, if you're here, you see that there's a lot of things going on here, um, and it seems like a lot to navigate. 40 verses of instruction and some hard topics, and Paul doesn't pull any punches in this section. We're going we're gonna to read it together in a moment, but he's headed right to the heart of an issue uh, that the Corinthians are experiencing uh, and that he wants to address because of a question that they pose to him. Let's read this together. It's going to take us a bit. We're going to read it anyways, all 40 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in, in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who, has, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. 
Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a betrothed woman married, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who were busy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and he has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who married his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God." Now, <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, the reason I've chosen all 40 verses in one shot is because I think Paul is presenting one very clear through line in all of this. So this is a lot. There's a lot here, and there's a lot of instruction going on here, and a lot of things that, that are intensely personal. A lot of things that, that may we may, as individuals in this room this morning, may have experienced in, in our lifetime. But this whole text is interwoven, and I want to I I bring it all home and, and see where Paul is going and why he's, why he's going this direction. Paul wants the Corinthians to come away with practical instruction on living in light of Christ's sacrifice and in light of his return. But he also wants them to be encouraged and comforted, and something that I think is dramatically unexpected in this text something that we don't often see when we get bogged down in some of the instruction that's being given here, some of this is is that Paul wants to push the Corinthians to find rest, to find the thing in which they are resting first and foremost, to find comfort despite their societal place, despite their status in, in marital issues or in employment. Paul wants them to rest. 
And we look at this text and we say, well, I don't see a whole lot of rest or encouragement in this text. In fact, it seems pretty indicting. In fact, it seems pretty, pretty frustrating. And, and, and you may find yourself in a position this morning where this, this causes you to bristle a little bit. Where you think to yourself, well, this can't be right. Paul, what are you saying? And when we think about it and we say, well, this doesn't seem very comforting. This doesn't seem very encouraging. And at first glance, it doesn't seem that way. But we need to look harder into the text and see exactly what Paul is driving at here for, for the people in Corinth. What is he driving at? And so where we want to go is we want to, we, want to, we want to go back to the principle that sort of underlies this whole chunk of text. Explore the principle under the instruction and how it, how it offers us rest. So we're going to look at or consider really three things this morning. And the first one just comes to us in verse 1. The first thing comes to us in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says this, he writes this. Now concerning, this is really the first half of the verse. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul is starting a new section here. And really this is going to carry him through the end of the book. He's going to give us practical instruction about things that the Corinthians actually wrote to him about. So the Corinthians came to Paul and said, hey, we need practical instruction on X, Y, and Z. What are these things that, that, that we need to know about? So far, Paul has just simply addressed things that have come up or have risen as a concern to him. Reports that he's received about the Corinthians. If you remember back, we talked about Chloe's people and we talked about other reports that he was receiving about disunity in the body. And so Paul now comes to something that the Corinthians actually wrote and delivered to him. And they start first with the issue of marriage and singleness, betrothal, divorce, things that are entirely practical in, in our in our context. But first of all, we see here that despite all of the Corinthians' arrogance, despite their disunity, despite their lack of harmony, despite following Paul or Apollos or Cephas, despite all of these things that Paul has addressed, probably in the first six chapters, all the things that have come up amongst Paul, with Paul, he gets to chapter 7 and we actually see somewhat of a teachable posture by the Corinthians. And this is commendable. This is commendable. The, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Corinthians is actually putting them in a position where they are about to receive instruction. Where they have said, we don't know everything. Despite the fact that oftentimes they sort of seem like they think they know everything. And so they say, we don't know anything. Or we don't know much about these topics. What does it look like to live in light of this sacrifice of Christ? What does it look like to live in light of Jesus' return when it comes to marriage, divorce, singleness, betrothal, all of these issues that Paul hits in chapter 7? So I think this is helpful. I think this teachable spirit that the, that the Corinthians exemplify, I think, is helpful for us. And I think that we can glean a lot from it. Even though the Corinthians struggled in many ways, they approached Paul with their tough questions. Paul calls himself a spiritual father earlier in the book, and they actually come to him as a spiritual father. Now, they needed to come to him with some more issues. We already saw that earlier, but they come to him as a, as a spiritual father. As any earthly father would hope our children would come to us to ask us questions about things going on in their lives. As a dad, I long for my kids to come to me and to ask me questions about, about life. And so they ask Paul 
questions. They sought understanding. Again, they were misguided in a lot of fronts, but the Holy Spirit prompted them to lay down their pride in these issues and to seek wisdom. I love Proverbs 18.2. And many of us have talked about this recently. I feel like it just keeps coming up over and again. But in Proverbs 18.2, it says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And to the Corinthians' credit here, they sought understanding. Yeah, they had opinions and maturity may have alluded to them to this point, but we can learn a lot because they set aside an opinion and they took pleasure in understanding. They asked tough questions from a spiritual perspective. And, and friends, we should be inspired to ask tough questions also from a spiritual perspective. We are far too laissez-faire about the way that we approach spiritual things. We ask simple, boiled-down questions that oftentimes lead us to simple, unprofound understandings about the person of God and Jesus and any matter of theology. And so they, to their credit again, they sought understanding. And we shouldn't be surprised, though, when they ask hard questions here that they get some pretty hard answers. We shouldn't be surprised. The nature of the question is typically commensurate with the, the, uh, the difficulty of it. And for the mind that is being renewed, hard questions and hard answers, friends, they're a relief. They are a relief. Why? Well, one reason, I think, is because they clearly show us how insufficient we are as people. They clearly show us how insufficient we are apart from Christ. And we're, only, we're stuck in the first half of the first verse this morning. we got like 39 and a half to go. But, but, we're, but we're stuck here because I think this is important. Because it is the lead-in to all of this difficult instruction that Paul is about to dish out to the church in Corinth. I told a friend this week that I was going to preach from 1 Corinthians 7 this weekend. And his response, he said, he said that's a real seat clearer. <laughs> and, and I said, thank you. That's very encouraging. But secondly, I thought to myself, don't leave. This is encouraging. It ultimately is under the surface. It has a lot of encouragement for us here. There's a lot of things because hard questions have hard answers and they're meant to drive us to a place where the realization or the place where we realize that our only hope is Jesus. King David said this. He said, let us fall into the hands of our Lord for his mercy is great. So Buffalo City Church, would be a church, would we be a church that asks hard questions with the expectation of receiving hard answers? Would we seek God in his word for tough answers? And may the answers always be too hard for us to implement ourselves. May they always be too hard for us to put into practice ourselves so that we fall into the hands of our Lord, for his mercy is great. We sang it last week at the end of our time, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So we see this, verse half, concerning the matters about which you wrote. The Corinthians come to Paul with a teachable spirit. So let's start considering some of the responses Paul gives to the Corinthians' questions. So this is where it gets hard, right? And we're going to run through these and, and hopefully I'll give you a little bit of interpretation in each instance here. And then we're going to push down. We're going to push down to the heart of the matter. What is the heart of this instruction? Where is it? Why is it here? What's important about it? 
Why does Paul care so much about these things that they've written to him? Okay, so first, again, we're going to kind of bite off this whole section. Save verses 17 through 24. Save that for a little bit, so take that and set it aside. But verses 1 through 23, and then verses 20, or I'm sorry, 1 through 16, and then verses 25 through the end of the chapter, we're going to take these and just consider them together. So, verse 1, the second half, they wrote to Paul, the Corinthians wrote to Paul, and he quotes them here. Your Bible probably has quotes, quotation marks. They wrote this to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not Paul saying that. That's the Corinthians saying that. Now Paul is actually going to dispute that idea. He's actually going to dispute the idea. We see some rejected in the church in Corinth, some rejected physical intimacy. Even though last week we saw that some were giving themselves to sexual immorality, this week we see that some give themselves to, to a complete abstinence from sexual relations, even in the proper venue, even in marriage. And so asceticism is probably a significant idea in Corinth at the time. And so asceticism is just the denial of personal pleasure here on earth, denial all altogether of personal pleasure. Any pleasure on earth needs to be set aside. That's what an ascetic would say. Now, the Bible talks a lot about self-denial and surrender. We even talked about that a little bit last week when we were looking at chapter 6. And so we ask ourselves, does that mean that the Bible promotes asceticism? And the answer is very clearly no. The Bible doesn't say that pleasure is something that's forbidden. It just says that there's a bad place oftentimes to find it. There are, well, in bad place, what I mean is lots of bad places to find it. The Bible doesn't say pleasure is bad, just that there are bad places to find it. Psalm 1611 says it very clearly. What is the right place to find it? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We seek pleasure through knowing and loving God. That is our highest good. That is the place where we find lasting joy. That is the place where pleasure will flow to us. Pleasures that are everlasting. And that which God has deemed good is that which points us to him and we find pleasure there. So we're not called to deny ourselves food and drink and sex and entertainment, but we're called to hold them in their proper place. And we are called to put them in a spot where they find their, uh, where we find their, uh, their proper expression. Not seeking pleasure, ultimate pleasure in them, but seeking pleasure in God who graciously gives us all things to enjoy. So right use of God's gifts leads to lasting pleasure. Improper use of God's gifts leads to fleeting pleasure. So this is Paul's argument. This is the way that Paul argues right here in this text. Physical intimacy pursued, properly pursued in marriage will lead to lasting pleasure because it lines up with God's design. Delighting in your husband or wife, and the Proverbs of Father instructs his son to delight in the wife of his youth. It's just, so don't abstain from physical intimacy in the context of marriage. Paul says there is a time where you can take a break from physical intimacy and you've set time aside specifically for the purpose of prayer. But this should be for a limited time so that you may not be tempted to, dissolve, to, 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 uh, 
to indulge desires outside of marriage. Now, as a final note, look at me. Look, look at me. No, look in the text. No, look at me. Look at the text. Verse 6. If you're reading the ESV, I think it's an unfortunate reality that they kind of put a paragraph break here. Verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. What does that go with? It goes with verse 5. He's saying, he's saying for a limited time, you may choose to set aside physical intimacy in marriage for the purpose of prayer. It's not a requirement. It's not a requirement, but if you choose to abstain from physical intimacy in marriage, it's not a requirement, but it is something that you may choose to do for a limited period of time. Now, this means that verse 7, when he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. When he says this, he's saying, Paul is saying, I have a very high view of marriage and I have a very high view of singleness. God has put you in a place where you are married for a specific reason or God has put you in a place of singleness for the time being for a specific reason. High view of both. One is not a punishment from God. And we're going to see that here as we move into verse 8. So then Paul writes to, uh, to single people. He says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he speaks to single people, both who, those who have not yet been married and those who have lost a spouse. He says that they should remain just as they are, just like he was. Paul, Paul was not married. And there is an exception here, too. If you're single and you struggle with purity, you should seek marriage. And strong desires should be an indicator that you should seek a spouse. So several of you this morning in here are single, more than several. God, consider that God values your position. God values your position. It is an important spot that you find yourself. God puts you there for a purpose. Elizabeth Elliot writes this, the, the wife of the late Jim Elliot, who was killed on the mission field. She said this, If you are single today, it is, a, it is the portion assigned to you for today, or the portion assigned, let me start again. If you are single today, the portion assigned to you for today is singleness. It is God's gift. Singleness ought not to be viewed as a problem, nor marriage as a right. God in his wisdom and love grants either as a gift. Single people, this is hard to get your head around, but God has you where you are for a reason. That's what this text says. God has you where you are for a purpose. He has you there for a purpose. So don't waste your time longing to be married if you're single. Instead, ask the question, again, what is our primary metric of success in the Christian life? It's faithfulness. Ask yourself, where the Lord has me this morning as a single person, how will I be faithful with what God has given me today? How will I be faithful with what God has given me today? Paul then steps back and addresses those who are married. Issues of marriage in verse 10. And he indicates that this is a command from God echoing Jesus' take now on divorce and remarriage in, the, in, in Matthew and Luke, in the Gospels. And he says a wife shouldn't divorce from her husband and a husband shouldn't divorce his wife. And if you look at this text, you see, um, you see the word separate here. 
This is not our modern day understanding of separation, but it should be understood as a divorce. It's not taking a period of time where you're not living together despite the fact that the, the government still sees you as, as legally married. This is, should be seen as a, a, a actual, actual divorce. And so he says, a wife should not divorce for a husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. And Paul's instruction is concise here and must be seen in the same principle as it was used with singleness. If you're single, he says, be content. Don't obsessively pursue marriage. If you're married, be content. Don't obsessively pursue singleness. Both instances may lead to rash decisions. This is what Paul is saying. The divorce is a big deal. Paul gives just a little bit of instruction here. He doesn't give a lot. And so when you give a little bit of instruction, we see other places that are more specific. Consider Matthew chapter 6 or Matthew chapter 19 when it comes to the issue of divorce. So he, he thinks or he is aware of the fact that the Corinthians are, in fact, themselves aware of Jesus' teaching. And so he's not going to give a robust defense of this or that or the other thing here. It's a little bit nuanced. Paul knows the Corinthians are aware of that teaching. So we can take this to mean that the Corinthians, he wants the Corinthians to see that there are bad reasons to get divorced. There are bad reasons to get, if you get divorced just because you think singleness would be better, bad reason, Paul says. And there are two reasons that divorce is permitted in the New Testament. Jesus cited sexual immorality, and Paul gives a second right here in our text. If you bounce down to verse 15, you'll see it here. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, if a brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. If an unbeliever, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbelieving spouse initiates the divorce, the believer is free from marital obligation and free to remarry. So we have two exceptions, sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Even then, the thrust of verses 12 through 14, right before we get to verse 15, indicates that the believer is married to an unbeliever. The believer shouldn't be looking for a way out. But if the unbeliever leaves, the believer isn't bound and should apply the end of verse 15. God has called you to peace. So live a life that is honoring to God by understanding and moving forward, not giving distress or worry or anxiety, but understanding that God has put you in the place that you are for a purpose. Now, before we move on, again, divorce is a big deal in our culture. This is a big thing and is taken far too flippantly in our context. We as the church must recognize and realize that we are called to uphold a biblical view of marriage. Just like Paul holds up marriage as a high standard and Paul holds up singleness as a high standard, we are called to hold both to a high view as well. Many of us in this room have been affected by divorce. Several of you know, several I've, I'm unsure but many of us in this room have been affected by divorce. Parents, extended family, people you love and respect. It's probably hard for anyone in this room to find someone, whether in their immediate extended family, who has not been either part of a divorce or divorced themselves. And so you may be here today and you yourself are 
are divorced. And very rarely is all of this very straightforward. Right? Paul gives a little bit here. We have a little bit more in Matthew chapter nine or Matthew chapter six and Matthew chapter nineteen. But very rarely is this straightforward. It's emotionally complex, it's dramatically painful, and it's endlessly challenging. And and maybe you're here this morning and you've made significant mistakes. Maybe you have. In your current marriage, and it's in a tough place, and if you're wondering, if you're careening towards, divorce yourself. Maybe that was you, and your marriage ended, and you feel immensely guilty, and you're trying to justify the action you took. Friends, Psalm 147.3 says that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. For those who are affected by and the bystanders of divorce, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Or those who have been divorced themselves, God will bind up your wounds. Friends, we must not take divorce lightly. We must not. As the church, we are called to a high view of marriage. We are absolutely called to a high view of marriage. We must stand together with a biblical view. But those who are affected must be lovingly cared for. Those who find themselves in untenable positions with a spouse, in abusive situations or places where they themselves are challenged by by just the dramatic sinfulness that happens in the heart of hearts of men that drive us to places that we wish that we would never go. Those who are affected by divorce must be lovingly cared for by the church and must be offered the reminder that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we as people, as those who are the church, as those who make up the local church must recognize that it is not our job to condemn, but our job to offer hope in Christ Jesus to people who find themselves in untenable positions relationally. Our ultimate hope isn't that we would get everything right all of the time. We can have a high view of marriage and not get everything right all of the time. Our ultimate hope is in the person and work of Jesus and in him alone. So this all has to do then with addressing questions pertaining to marriage. Now bounce down the page here. Bounce down the page to verse 25. And this is part of what we call engagement in our culture. Although betrothal looks significantly different, um, the, the modern day equivalent is, is engagement. Now concerning the betrothed, so Paul's going to write a handful of things, we're going to run through them quickly. Um, verse 27, Paul says, you're married, don't try to get out of it. But what about those who are engaged? Carry through with the marriage. And Paul continues, if you go down all the way to verse 36 to 38, that thought is continued there. And then he rounds out the, uh, the chapter in verse 39 by writing, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry. So the widow, right, if someone is widowed in this life, they have then the right to remarry. But then he adds this little caveat here. And he says, Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. 
So Paul's building an argument based on experience, and he is giving instruction based on how, what he knows to be true about what he's, he's experienced. And then he says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He has good reason to make this statement. Now, I mentioned verses 25 through uh, 25 and 26, 27, 28, but 29 through 35 get a little bit sticky. Let me read this for us again because this is, this is a little bit difficult. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who had wives live as they had none. <laughs> and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good in order that you secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So this is a little bit sticky. We're reading this, we're thinking to yourself, okay, so like Paul has a high view of marriage, but then he gets here and you're like, okay, but so a married man is, is a little bit more anxious because he's like bound to this woman, but, but at the same time, like what, what is actually going on here? And I'm going to offer you an idea or a concept here that oftentimes shows up in scripture, particularly in the letters of Paul. He says, this is not intended to be additional instruction on marriage, or singleness, or to say that we all have a lower view of marriage and a higher view of singleness, or something like that. We're not putting this in, the, in the, the scale and weighing both against one another. That's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing is he, he's saying, Jesus came to earth and promised to come back. That's what he's saying. That's the heart of what he says in verses 29 through 35. Jesus came to earth, he died, he, he purchased you back, and he is coming back. That's what's happening. That's what Paul is communicating here in this text. And so what he's saying is, your marital status here on earth is, is honestly of little consequence. Not that it's not important and you need to find yourself, you need to be faithful where you find yourself today, but in light of the fact that Jesus is returning it's of little consequence. Jesus said it himself in Luke 20, verses 34 and 35. He says this. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that's eternity, to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So marriage is something that's here. It's given to us on earth. And there's this theological idea that Paul fleshes out in, first, or, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5. And he tells us that, that marriage here on earth is designed to be a reflection of Christ in the church. So when Jesus returns and his bride is brought to, bride being Christ, is brought back to Jesus and they consummate the marriage, no longer is that picture a necessary one. So we, together this morning, are making up something that is pointed heavenward. The local church, the bride of Christ, will be joined together with Christ when Christ returns and then that picture will become obsolete. 
So we this morning look at this and we say, uh, marriage is important, again, because of faithfulness and because of all the instruction that comes to us in marriage in the Bible. However, it is a venue for our faithfulness and it is a venue to point to who God is. Now, that's a heady concept, but at the same time, it's vastly important for you in your marriage if you are married, and it's vastly important for you as a single person who may desire to, at some point, be married in your life. So, at the end here, Paul is saying that marriage and singleness are gifts, like Paul says in verse 7. They don't ultimately determine the, the, the satisfaction or the source of one's joy and satisfaction. Joy and satisfaction can only be found in Jesus Christ. There are situations like marriage that could, not necessarily have to, but could divert one's attention away from Jesus And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they need to be aware of potential distractions in their pursuit of living in light of the return of Jesus. Let me say that again because that's important. That's how we sum this all up. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they need to be aware of potential distractions in their pursuit of living in light of the return of Jesus. Okay, so that's all of that instruction. So what? So what, Paul? Let's get to the heart of it. The heart of the the teaching. The heart of all of this instruction. We've made our way through it. Now, I told you to set verses 17 through 25 aside, or 24 aside. Look at that with me. Look at this little phrase here in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Now now this is incredibly important in understanding all the instruction that Paul just gave. We don't want to get so bogged down in the details that we miss this incredible phrase in this incredible section. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The whole picture here is quite beautiful. And while we need to seek to apply this instruction to our day-to-day lives, the heart of it stands here. This phrase given to us is a really important principle. Paul says, be content where the Lord has you. Be content where the Lord has you. He has you there for a reason. He has you there for a purpose. Whatever your situation this morning. Now when we look at all of these marriage scenarios Paul gives, that's the theme. Consider this. Consider each of these sections and each of these instructions. You're married? Do married people things. A.K.A. physical intimacy. You're single? That's a gift. Don't obsessively look to change that unless you suffer from a lack of self-control. You're married? Don't pursue divorce unless one of these exceptions is present. You have an unbelieving spouse? Don't leave. But if he or she leaves, you're free. You're engaged? God has given, God has a reason for that. 
It may be moved towards marriage or it may be for a season where you're pursuing the Lord and his purposes for your life. You're a widow. Consider that you may be happier if you didn't marry a second time. Where does the Lord have you now? Now again, in each one of these situations, there are good reasons to move towards a different status. However, Paul's primary purpose in instructing us in these ways is to show us that we ought to be content where we are right now. And the Corinthians were probably concerned about how their marital or societal status played into their mission as a church. Paul was very clear what their mission was. It was to be a light to those around them who didn't yet know. It was to, very much like the mission of Buffalo City Church, to make disciples who make disciples. It was to understand and know that Jesus' instruction to the church was to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so this idea, what is the, how does this affect our mission as a church? What about, like, could, can I possibly be an effective witness? Can I be a, a disciple maker or a disciple myself if I'm unmarried? Paul says yes. Can I if I'm single? Paul says yes. If I have an unbelieving spouse, can I? Yes, you can. And this is why Paul's instruction offers this rest. Because God has you where you are this morning for a purpose. Our culture is always asking us for what's next. What's next for you? Our kindergartner is regularly being asked what he's going to be when he grows up. He doesn't know. <laughs> the question is, where are you going? How are you going to get into college? What's your major going to be? What are your dreams? What are your goals? What are you hoping to accomplish? How are you going to get that promotion at work? What's next? When are you going to further your education? What are you going to retire? What are you going to do with your retirement? These questions are endless. And we put a high premium on the answers. Is it good to have direction in life? Yes. Is it good to care about what's next? Yes. But Paul's instruction offers us rest because it tells us we are right where God wants us now. And if you're a Christian, be assured that God has you right where you are for a reason. Single, unmarried, unemployed, employed part-time, employed full-time, entry-level job, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you name it, God has you right where you are for a purpose. How could God have me where he wants me? You say, my life is terrible. Maybe it is. This is not the point. That's not the point of this text. God can use you in a terrible circumstance or in one that seems really great. Your perception of the quality of situation is not a prerequisite for God to work in your life. And as Christians, we've often got this backwards. God does have a plan for your life, but it may not always look like the one that you choose for yourself. We tend to slip into this mindset that if I'm not happy with my circumstances, that requires a change. And sometimes it does, and Paul makes allowance for it. We slip into this mindset, our circumstances need to change. That our desires as people are always God's desires. Well, of course, I, this desire is mine, and so that must be God's too. And that our goals are always God's goals. But this 
thinking can ultimately lead us down a problematic path. If you think that God's goals should always reflect your goals, that makes you God. And friends, I can assure you this morning that you're not. God's goals may look different. And contentment is aligning your goals and desires with God. That's a simple definition for contentment. Contentment is aligning your goals and your desires with God's. Are you married? It's the life the Lord has assigned. Are you single? It's the life the Lord has assigned. If you can't exercise self-control and you're single, time to get married. So again, there are exceptions, but it is better to be content. It is better to align your goals and desires with God's rather than expend valuable energy to get out of your circumstances because you think you know better. I'm going to give you one thought here in conclusion this morning. And I know I've gone for a long time. There's a lot of, lot of text here. But consider this. The, the world brings comparison and Jesus brings contentment. Last thing I'm going to say. The world brings comparison and Jesus brings contentment. Some of you need to go home right now and delete a Facebook account. It, seriously, I, that, if, if you want some practical instruction, some of you need to go home and delete a Facebook account because if you're impervious to all that nonsense, that's great. I'm so glad for you. But like most of us aren't. And so even me as a pastor, I go online and I see my friends that I went to a seminary with or whatever, and they're going to these amazing lecture series and they're hanging out, having these great conversations, high-minded theological conversations on seminary campuses and all of these things. I think to myself, oh, you had another opportunity to write an article. That's wonderful. I could do that, right? And we think to ourselves, and I'm comparing myself and the situation that the Lord has put me in as far as my vocation goes to someone else. The problem often with social media that it says, look at me or look what you could have if you could just escape your current reality. And don't get me wrong, it works both ways. We also oftentimes go on, on social media and air our frustrations, right? And the complaining also becomes a contest. Hashtag real life is just socially acceptable complaining. And comparison runs rampant on social media. New cars, homes, boats, travel, on and on and on. If I made a bit more money, then I could do the things that people on Instagram do. But you don't have to have social media. So if you're like, I don't have a social media account, good. Again, congratulations. However, that, this, the comparisons happen all over the place. If you've watched 35 seconds of television in the last 30 years, you understand this principle. Young, attractive people always happily driving brand new cars. Where do they get the money? That guy's like 10, 10 years younger than me. If you had this or th this thing or that thing or this relationship or this job, you could be content. But while the world brings us comparisons and now is shoving these comparisons on us, and we're oftentimes susceptible to them, when that's happening to us, we must recognize that Jesus brings contentment. Jesus brings contentment. And Jesus purchased our contentment at the cross. Discontent, simply this. Discontent exists in the world because our sin separates us from God. That is the baseline of discontent. How could we as people be content separated from our creator? Or how could we be content if we are separated from our creator? 
It's really as simple as that. Think about it. If there was nothing separating you from your God, the only one at whose right hand contains pleasure, satisfaction, joy, and delight, if that barrier of sin separated from your God was removed, what could, you, what could keep you from being content? Friends, there's good news. There is good news. Jesus brings contentment because he removes the barrier of sin between you and your God, and this is the gospel. Jesus died to remove that barrier that you might be forgiven of your sin. And, God, and Jesus gives you right standing with God. If you turn from your sin and trust Jesus this morning to remove you of your sin, and if you seek to apply this truth to your everyday life, you will be armed with exactly what you need to battle discontent. You're single and you really hope to be married. Your contentment was purchased at the cross. You're married and you're frustrated. Things have been rocky with your spouse. Your contentment was purchased at the cross. You, you lost a spouse and you miss him or her. The companionship and you feel alone. Your contentment was purchased at the cross. You're a stay-at-home mom and the 14-day weather forecast doesn't show above zero and your kids are going absolutely stir-crazy and you're pulling your hair out. Your contentment was purchased at the cross. Your job is challenging. People are not kind. They run all over you. And you're discouraged. Your contentment was purchased at the cross. Contentment is something that you have to fight for. You need to recognize and realize that your contentment was purchased at the cross. I don't know your situation this morning, and many of you are in dire ones. Friends, your contentment is purchased at the cross. There is nothing that this world can offer you that can bring you back into right relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the only way to have ultimate satisfaction, joy, pleasure, contentment. Friends, this is the baseline of this text. Wherever you find yourself this morning, maritally, societally, your contentment was purchased at the cross. Paul knew it was true for the Corinthians and it's true for us as well. In his, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is a telegraphed title for us, the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs writes, if you would get a contented life, do not grasp too much of this world. Do not take in more of the business of the world than God calls you to. God may call you to singleness. He may call you to marriage. He may call you to a certain job or a certain season of life but you must hold it in proper perspective. The world says find your identity in your material, your status, or your career. That is taking part in the world more than God calls you to. And so, friends, we have to fight it. We have to fight seeking contentment in any place other than the cross of Christ. We must find contentment in what Paul writes in verse 17, in the life of that the Lord has assigned. Let's pray.